0: Here, now broadcasting from the underground command post deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building we've once again made contact with our leader mark levin
1: well it was right here same time same place february 2nd day of the breaking nunez memo But I started the show by saying they are corrupt as hell. They are corrupt as hell. And who was I talking about? I was talking about any number of senior officials, ranging various different departments as well, because, well, I had boiled down from that Nunez memo that day, 30 statements of fact that I called my 30-count indictment. And the funny thing is, all these many months later, as we are here in December, well, that 30-count indictment put together from that original Nunez memo still holds true, and... As much as things have changed over the course of time, well, the the more things change, the the more they stay the same. I mean, sure, uh, we, we no longer have Mr. Magoo as attorney general. And ironically enough, on a week that was highlighted by us remembering our 41st president, an attorney general who served under our 41st president has been nominated by President Trump today, Bill Barr, which, given the lay of the land in the Senate, almost certainly will be the next attorney general of the United States. But pretty much uh, all the other things, these despite the drama, are still the same. You still have one James Comey. He, of the inappropriately named fiction book that he came out with many months ago, it should have been uh, Tall Tales by James Comey, would have been much more appropriate. But anyway, uh, he, he's still out there. And after having been, uh, on four different occasions, a co-conspirator in one of the Greatest conspiracies this country has ever seen, something that made Watergate look small. He's still out there, and he was testifying behind closed doors today and apparently uh, stonewalling at the behest of his attorneys, which included, well, uh, one of the Department of Justice officials. Isn't that uh, isn't that quaint? Isn't that quaint given that? Oh, that's right. One of the co-conspirators. That we were talking about on February 2nd is still at the Justice Department, that being Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Huh. I wonder why. I wonder why the Justice Department is not wanting James Comey to talk. I mean, it's shocking, really. So that's still going on. And, yeah, we still have, oh, I don't know, a lack of accountability with other folks, too. Not just James Comey and Rod Rosenstein, but now folks like Andrew McCabe, Sally Yates, Dana Panetta. You know, all those various, uh, you know, folks. And and you have, oh, Br- that's right, Bruce Orr and his wife. They, they're still unaccounted for, too. And Bruce Orr, you know, he, he still uh, goes ahead and hangs out at Justice as well. Again, the the more things change, the the more they stay the same. Hey, it is Brian Mudd, your South Florida friend. And for the uh, great one, Mark Levin, tonight. And I do a morning show. I host the Morning Rush WJNO in West Palm Beach. Then I do the Brian Mudd Show. W.I.O.D. in Miami. I am a Fox News guest contributor in my spare time, Been known to do various different uh, janitorial tasks. Actually, yeah, it's, truth be told, I'm a borderline germaphobe, so not so much there. Uh, but uh, it's always a pleasure to be here with you and to talk about the truth. And there is a desperate need for more of that in this country and also the accountability that goes along with truth. Because that's the real issue we have here. And as we have also received this week, remember early in the week when we ended up having the Mueller team that came out with the initial recommendations on Flynn? What happened? Well, you had everybody in the media lose their gourd. I mean, this was going to be the big one, right? I mean, Flynn, and he cooperated. Ooh, you know what that means. Trump-Russia collusion and all of our dreams coming true. And of course not. Here we are on Friday. No Trump-Russia collusion. No evidence of anything new that came out of that whole Flynn deal. And, oh, right. And so then we end up getting, uh, earlier today, confirmation that in this just in, Michael Cohen is a liar. Which was a pretty good indication given that earlier this week, under oath, he testified that he lied to Congress under oath last year. So then you just have to decide, okay, so when was it that he lied under oath? Last year before Congress or now when he's potentially facing, I don't know, life behind bars. But that apparently is not going to save his butt because Mueller's recommendation is not Flynn-like. The recommendation that Mueller came out with it was uh, included a request for substantial jail time. Substantial jail time. So apparently not looking good for Michael Cohen. And the breaking news in pretty much real time that I was trying to disseminate just moments before airtime. Manafort, we heard that something was also going to happen with Manafort today, and apparently we do have a filing uh, that is taking place by the Mueller team on Paul Manafort. Now, what do we know based upon all of these various different things? Number one, that there still is no evidence of any Trump-Russia collusion. The only purpose for Robert Mueller and his team. Two, that, yeah, they really must be getting close to the end because he is making recommendations and all these various different witnesses that would have been with Donald Trump at the time in question. So, yes, uh, the the end apparently is near in this saga, wherever it goes. And here's another one that's a little bit off the radar, something that is even more absurd in context. We are on the precipice of Team Mueller and the 17 angry Democrats, as President Trump will put his team. They're on the the precipice of actually having spent more of our taxpayer money as they are closing in on the $50 million mark than even that last little bit of information about the Moscow Trump Tower. Remember how that was going to really be set up with a sweet $50 million penthouse for Putin and company. They're getting ready to, to spend more on this probe that has revealed no Trump Russia collusion. Then the alleged smoking gun that's anything but would have revealed. And the dumbest thing running was the idea that somehow or another, Donald Trump decided, you know what? I run a $10 billion per year revenue enterprise known as the Trump Organization. I personally am worth many billions of dollars. You know what I need to do on a project whose total cost is $250 million dollars? I need to set up a whole conspiracy to get myself elected under this whole Trump-Russia collusion narrative to set up that $250 million project with the $50 million penthouse that goes to Putin. That makes all the sense in the world. And and one of the dumber things about all this, I was thinking as we were getting some of those details about the Trump Tower deal recently, in the grand scheme of Things. I have been on the precipice of people that are far more than impressive than myself my entire career. And in one of those encounters, ended up having, before he ever got into politics, a lunch with Donald Trump at Trump International in West Palm Beach. And happened to see a little bit of what makes him tick. And definitely getting a deal done. During the course of the lunch, on a couple different occasions, he ended up getting the phone call excused himself. And the second time he came back he had a deal that was done and it was for $18 million. It was some entertainer that I'd never heard of, which even if it were in the United States would not be on for me. Not exactly uh, your go-to guy on pop culture. But anyway, some European entertainer is not familiar with at some European resort. And he was so incredibly excited to get that deal done. And I remember thinking at the time, huh, it's kind of interesting. And in the grand scheme of everything that goes on, he had just come off the golf course. He was having lunch. Here he is with, his operation in dozens of countries around the world, and he is personally working on this $18 million exclusive deal for some entertainer. I was like, huh, okay. And it's kind of instructive, you know, ever since he became president. But what I get a a huge, huge laugh out of is the idea that somehow on a random Thursday over lunch with me at Trump International, he ended up signing a deal that is only $32 million less significant than what Trump-Russia collusion was supposed to be based on. How stupid are we supposed to be? How stupid are we supposed to be? So the more things change, the more they stay the same. No accountability for any of the co-conspirators. Democrats getting ready to take over the House. We've already been told today that all the investigations are going to come to an end. It was called, quote, a waste of time to actually hold any of these people accountable. Any of these people accountable that ended up falsifying the dossier ended up. Colluding with one another, the Department of Justice, the FBI, to try to surveil and successfully surveil candidate Trump, president-elect Trump, and president of the United States, Donald Trump. We continue to see that Hillary walks free. By the way, isn't it interesting how much time Bill and Hillary are spending together these days? I'm almost beginning to think they like each other. It's kind of weird, just as an aside. So that still happens. Comey still happens. All these other people still happen, and again, we still have Rod Rosenstein, Bruce Orr at the Department of Justice, and what? So there are a couple things that are important going forward here. First and foremost, if we don't have accountability, what will ever keep this from happening again? Nothing. And that's the, the greatest risk going forward. Now, I'm here in South Florida. You remember because you probably know our supervisors of elections names, and you don't even know your own. But you probably remember the names. Susan Booker, sometimes called Butcher because people didn't know how to pronounce her name nationally, but it's Booker uh, in Palm Beach County, and Brenda Snipes in Broward County. And uh, huh, if we don't have accountability there, What do we have? We're going to have more corruption. Well, thankfully, our outgoing governor, Rick Scott, has actually suspended and appointed somebody to go in there and figure out what the hell happened in Broward. And we actually might have accountability for supervisor of elections in Broward, which, by the way, you should all thank uh, our governor, Rick Scott, who's incoming uh, U.S. senator, uh, junior senator from Florida, because he might actually save us from another one of these Florida uh, election fiascos in the future. But that's what it what it's going to take. Without accountability, without people truly being held uh, according to the rule of law, according to justice, it is a banana republic. And it's just more of the same, more of the same. Two sides of stories, one side of facts. And I encourage you, by the way, to go get my 30-count indictment. You can search it, the archives. You can go to the thearchivesmarcovincho.com. You can also check out, uh, just search Brian Mudd, uh, 30-count indictment, and you will find it. And we're just getting warmed up and getting going, and we're going to begin to get into the Brady Law 25 years later. Uh, do you remember the Brady Bill that became the Brady Law and all the focus on gun control and how that was going to make everything better? Because if we only have more gun control, then things get better. So why is it that things have gotten worse? Well, we're going to talk about that coming up next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd In. investigation into a presidential candidate. And then less than a month after
2: that ended, they launched a counterintelligence investigation into the campaign of the other major presidential candidate. So that's a lot of power that we have given an entity. And it is not too much to ask for the former head of that
1: entity to come explain to Congress the decisions made and not made during the relevant time period. And among the many things today that happened, James Comey stonewalling behind closed doors and uh, his two attorneys every step of the way ensuring that he would not talk. Reportedly, he ended up uh, gleefully, gleefully uh, accepting their guidance and basically not speaking to anything. That was Trey Gowdy talking about James Comey and uh, why uh, there might be an interest in him actually I don't know, telling the truth and coming clean and telling us what actually happened, given that he signed off on four FISA warrant requests under false pretense. And, uh, you know, this minor thing that was a conspiracy that is much more significant than Watergate. But, you know, hey, when you got the right people in the right places, I guess. Right. Including at the Justice Department, because, again, you have people at the Justice Department that were your co-conspirators. I mean, it's funny how this all works. Uh, so, again, we will continue to track this and work on accountability. And, by the way, I had a uh, vet call in and uh, want to uh, uh, have remembrance for Pearl Harbor Day. Amen. Absolutely. We will never forget. In fact, coming up in the third hour, going to talk about socialism and going to talk about education and socialism from World War II until now. It is stunning what's happening. And when you see how democratic socialism has taken off, I wanted to trace back exactly how and why it's taken off. Now, the education establishment is absolutely, absolutely in the middle of it. But I'm going to walk you through the timeline and how it happened and what's going on right now and what our responsibility is to educate people about what's really going on and also have a lot of perspective on this being in South Florida because I think the key to it is going to be legal immigrants, legal immigrants from places like Venezuela. Venezuela. Legal immigrants from places like Cuba, the Dominican Republic, who get it, who know it, who have fled socialism, their families have fled socialism. That's going to be the key because our public education establishment that doesn't teach history, they have led to the level of complacency that we see today. So, again, getting into all of that in the third hour uh, and absolutely will pay homage to Pearl Harbor Day. All right. Now, a couple things that are somewhat uh, retrospective in addition to the 41st president this week. And some of what we've been talking about, uh, walking back to the findings from the Nunes memo, February 2nd, a lot of things tie together over the course of time. I, I mentioned at the onset, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I didn't realize until I actually saw this article earlier this week from Real Clear Politics, technically in the Real Clear Life section. Headline, as the Brady law turns 25 guns are killing more Americans than ever. Why? Well, what I didn't realize is that, holy crap, it's been 25 years. First thing is, yeah, it doesn't seem like it was yesterday, but man, I'm feeling old. And then you find out Schindler's List, 25 years too. Holy cow. Uh, By the way, as we're talking, talking about Pearl Harbor Day, Schindler's List, 25 years later, back in movie theaters, there's a whole generation that needs that kind of perspective and needs to be, ...informed about what socialism actually is. And for all the folks out there who say, oh, yeah, but, you know, democratic socialism is different. How was Hitler elected? Didn't people vote for him democratically? And don't even get me started on, on democracy, which isn't a thing. Not here or anywhere in the world. That's another thing we don't teach, but uh, I totally digress. But from the real clear politics story, as the Brady Law turns 25, guns are killing more Americans than ever. Why? Here's an excerpt from that article. According to the numbers compiled by the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence, using the most recent five years of complete data, 2012 to 2016, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, nearly 125,000 people in the United States are shot each year on average, including over 17,000 kids and teens. That's a pretty, pretty big number there. Now, breaking that down on a daily basis, 342 people are shot each day with an average of 96 of those shootings resulting in death. Those numbers don't look good, nor should they. But without the passage of the Brady bill, they'd be even worse, according to the Brady campaign co-president Chris Brown. All right, so kind of setting this up, if that made your skin crawl a little bit, and partially because of the guns are killing more Americans, I'm going to tackle that coming up next. We're going to talk about what's really going on in this country and what's really killing people and ain't the guns. I'm Brian Mudd and for the great one, Mark Louvain.
3: Eight three three ring B H N. Get fifteen percent off your first order with promo code Levin. That's Brickhouse L E V I N dot or call eight three three ring B H N. Promo code Levin.
4: a champion of freedom
5: you know you're one of the greatest champions of freedom in this country if not in the english-speaking world mark
6: call mark at 877-381-3811 at the core of our strategy is restoring respect for law enforcement and there's nobody that deserves respect more than you people that i can tell you
1: President Trump today at the Project Safe Neighborhoods National Conference talking to law enforcement about law enforcement. And in case you didn't know, because the rest of the untold story, we've already lost more police officers in the line of duty this year than we did all of last year. In fact, overall, police deaths are up 5% year-over-year. How about murdering of police officers? All right, murdering up 14% year-over-year. We have 88 widows so far this year. We have over 100 children that have lost a parent. That's the real story that's not told about law enforcement. May God bless you. Those of you who put on a badge, leave your families, and uh, go do what you do, do to keep us safe every day. We need you now more than ever, which, by the way, please, please go out of your way where you can to thank our law enforcement folks and their families. Think about their families. Most folks I know that are in law enforcement, they're driven by it. You know, they're not fearful day to day. You know, it's the mission. It's the calling. It's the families back home. that worry the most. So remember to support them certainly as well as your media will sit there and just paint the negative stories and fan the flames. Things like Black Lives Matter, what have you. Now, the Brady bill, 25 years later, the Brady law, it's hard to believe it's been 25 years. But nevertheless, it has. And I shared in an excerpt from an article from Real Clear Life talking about it. And the headline itself, as the Brady Law turns 25, guns are killing more Americans than ever. Why? And by the way, uh, you may tweet at me, at Brian Mudd Radio. Brian Mudd in for Mark Levin tonight. Continuing with a piece from this article, after we've determined that an average of 342 people are shot each day in this country, 96 of those shootings resulting in death. Chris Brown, who is the co-president of the Brady campaign, said the gun homicide rate has dropped precipitously since the enactment of the Brady law, while other forms of gun violence, like suicide, have risen. He said the Brady law was enacted in an attempt to ensure dangerous people did not have easy access to guns, and it's had a real impact looking at the data on the homicide rate. Citing these numbers, since the passage in 1993, more than 300 million guns have been sold, but 3 million sales did not go through that would have had it not become law. And yet, what have we seen? We've seen an increase in shootings, right? Okay, so a few things here. The moment that we actually stop focusing on guns and start focusing on people, maybe we'll accomplish something here. My gosh, you you need to look no further than the headline of the story, which drives me crazy. Guns are killing more Americans. Aside from that being structurally incorrect. Guns cannot kill people. This just in. People with guns can. Now. Now. What also gets me in all of this, when I think about negative conflict, i made some bad mistakes during the course of my life. And when I think about negative conflict and and folks who have targeted me and have hurt me and have screwed me, what I have, I haven't thought about, huh, what was the methodology that they went about that they used to try to hurt me? What methodology allowed them to do something wrong to me? Do you ever do that? You ever take a look at somebody who really did something wrong to you and sit there and, and think about, huh, now here's the method by which they did that. That's why I'm really upset with was the method, not the person. But the methodology. Nobody does that. Unless it's guns. Right. So what I have attempted to do and what's been helpful and what you probably have done is you go, OK. This is the kind of person that did this to me. I'm going to notice that in the future. I'm going to make sure I steer, steer clear of them. I'm not going to make those mistakes again, right? It's about the people. Now, maybe it's just that so many people have a fear of guns, that they're inclined to focus on an object rather than the actual user of the object. And maybe for some people, politics simply is more important than pragmatism. I'm sure that's the case. But whatever the case is, the fact remains a gun has never killed anyone the people have killed people using guns guns also are not able to be violent and as i talk about education and how the education establishment once again has failed us here don't doubt for a minute that the narrative of gun violence and guns killing people isn't deliberate These are highly intelligent people that sit there and write structurally incorrect and absolutely false headlines like guns are killing more people. They know what they're doing. It's all part of the game. If you condition people that guns equal killing people, guns equal violence, what have you achieved? So it's all part of putting the focus on the object rather than the people. And I'm not even saying this because i uh, you know th- there aren't reforms that, that might have sense attached to them i'm in florida we patched, uh, passed the marjorie and douglas school safety Act. comprehensive gun control in florida with a republican governor in complete republican control of the state house still passed and a lot of it made sense to me so it's not to say that there aren't reforms that might make sense but that's neither here nor there because gun control Gun control has done what? Has it made things better? The the one thing that really gets under my skin, and if you've heard me before, you've heard me talk about the premise. I talk about the premise because if the premise of anything is false, anything built on it is too. The premise of the problems in our society are the people, not the objects. So in this case, the false premise Is that we're just going after symptoms. We're not looking for solutions. We're trying to treat symptoms. And guns are nothing more than symptoms. Now, back to some of this data that was being cited in this story about the Brady Law 25 years later. According to the CDC data, 2016, the most recent information we have, 61% of deaths attributed to guns are are suicide. 61% are suicide. Now, even that gets back to the same place as the person who ends up acting out and killing others. It's what's wrong with people. And obviously, there's no single answer that cuts across the spectrum with everybody who goes out there and, and does this stuff. But the issues that we face today, they're worse than they've been. Despite, and this is the conversation I never hear advanced. At least not in this specific context. Why, if gun control is the answer, do we have more gun control from local governments to state governments to federal governments than we have ever had in the history of the United States of America? And why do we have more deaths attributed to guns? Necessarily, if gun control made a difference, if that improved things, it would go down. There's no way that you can in, make an intelligent argument to the contrary. And yes, even if you ju- adjust for population growth, yeah, even then it still do not work. Rate's still up. But see, there is an answer to that, and I'll get to it in a bit. It actually came from Harvard back in September, September 20th, and I did a story on it. I can't recall if I shared it with you here on the Mark Levin Show, but I'm going to get to that in a little bit too because it holds the answers that were buried. Stand by for that. But just to to put a little more context to gun control and what's changed in our society, rather than just talking about hard numbers, think for a moment about what was legal even 30 years ago. You realize that until the mid-80s, fully automatic weapons were legal? You know, people like to talk about, it's almost like a machine gun. Well, guess what? Fully automatic weapons were legal until the mid-1980s. And still, did we have atrocities like what happened in Las Vegas, what happened at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando or uh, down here in South Florida at, at Stillman Douglas High School? Any number of other issues. Did we have those types of atrocities even with fully automatic weapons? Why not? Why not? I mean, we have all this gun control. Those weapons aren't even legal, the fully automatic versions. But there is something. There's been a notable decline in religion in the United States. A link in the decline of religion that Harvard ended up creating a study around back in September and burying. They buried even their own research. See, it's not complicated. And I'm going to get into a little bit more of the detail of the Harvard study and information. But the premise of this is not complicated. If you have higher morality as a society, are you going to have more or less violence using any device? Think about that. See, for a long time, I've advanced the cause. And full disclosure, I am Catholic. And by the way, happy Hanukkah uh, to those that are celebrating. But I've argued for a long time that even an atheist benefits from religion, and it drives them crazy. But you do, because if you have more people who are moral, well, what do you have? Less chance of being hurt yourself. So when you have these indiscriminate shooters or terrorists and people that blow stuff up, what do you have? Well, they, they don't sit there and uh, you know figure out who is is there. Oh, you're an atheist. You're cool. Let's go. Don't work that way, right? You're just dead like the rest of them. So you, too, benefit, even Mr. Atheist, for more morality and more faith in society. But because our education establishment, including collegiately at Harvard, where they ended up having the study that helped connect the dots, since they are so opposed to it, just like they are opposed to God, what? they're opposed to God. well how do you explain that you would have evidence that faith would help bring down the number one issue that seems to be advanced which is gun violence and you wouldn't want to share that information so in their research in generations prior when we had God and religions in schools and society at a much higher level than we do today but much less strict gun policy. We didn't have the proliferation of violence that we have today. So think about it. Less strict gun policy, more people that were faithful in society, less violence, more gun control than we've ever had, less religious adherence in today's society than we've ever had. And it's worse. Two sides to stories, one side to facts. I got a lot more information for you on this. Coming up next, I'm Brian Mudd, and for The Great One. Mudd Lovin'.
7: Since coming to the U.N., everyone in this room has heard me talk about double standards and the fact that we need fairness in the U.N., And we take on heavy concerns and heavy issues, and the answers aren't always easy. But if we don't have fairness, we don't have anything else. This is not about emotion. This is about doing what's right.
1: Nikki Haley's last stand as she's making some of her final statements at the U.N., talking about hate and its people, ultimately, that are the problem, right? Whether you're talking about, uh, in this case, she was talking about Hamas and talking about Islamic terrorists and the fact that they have this pesky little thing like uh, the desire to eradicate Israel, so it's kind of hard to negotiate the, the Palestinian uh, peace and state situation if you're talking about, well, I, I don't know, actually the eradication of the uh, the state of Israel. But the point also remains with what we've been talking about, the Brady Law 25 years later, and why we're actually seeing, despite more gun control, top to bottom in the United States of America, more, let's say, violence perpetuated by people with the use of guns than we've ever had. Necessarily, that tells you that focusing on the object rather than the people doesn't work. And guess what? A majority of people actually do agree on that. I mean, overwhelmingly, any research you see On this topic today, on gun control, number one, typically between 85 to 95% of Americans agree, mental health issues are a real concern. Now, the devil can be in the details and how to deal with it, but let's think about this for a minute. If you get to the mental health issue, what's the catalyst behind mental health issues, right? Because I was talking about, uh, well, you know, you even had fully automatic weapons that were illegal going back to the mid-'80s, and we didn't have the types of atrocities in our society that we have today. So... Hmm, the people rather than the object. But above and beyond that, when you're talking about the actual catalyst behind mental health, well, mental health issues are not new, right? Just like guns are not new. But the proliferation of violence is. Okay, so why is it that we have the exacerbation of mental health issues in this country? Now, for over 20 years, I've voiced a belief That I I think is right at the crux of what goes on here. And it segued with Harvard research. The further removed God is from our society, the worse the outcomes are. Again, whatever your religious preferences are, simply removing morality, having less morality in society, not going to be good. Not going to be good. And the Harvard study they did was with the American Journal of Epidemiology. And here was the takeaway. Children raised with religious activity have better physical and mental health as they age. Let's give you a few of the numbers that were in the study. By the age of 20, by the age of 20, those raised with religious practices were 18% happier, 30% more likely to help others, 33% less likely to engage in substance abuse. And here's the thing. The research also showed that those who were the strongest in terms of practicing their faith actually fared the best. So those numbers were averages from people who just identified at 20 as being spiritual generally. But for those that were really into it, they were even higher numbers. Harvard research, Harvard study, showing you the direct connection between the benefit of having religion in your life and mental health outcomes. Why wasn't this the biggest story running in late September when it came out? I mean, it's outrageous that this was buried. But wait, there was even more to this. So entering 1980, the first full year of operations for the Department of Education, the average outcome for Americans was second in the world. And mental health problems were nowhere near an epidemic in this country. So what's happened since? Well, as the Department of Education has removed God from the education establishment and society, We've had a 300% increase in diagnosed depression. United States, 17th in education outcomes, 300% increase in mental health issues. Two signs to stories, one side of facts. We'll continue this conversation, get some of your thoughts as well coming up next hour. I am Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. (laughs)
3: Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouse, L-E-V-I-N.com, offer code LEVIN. He's here.
0: He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Mark
6: Levin his tenure, he demonstrated an unwavering adherence to the rule of law, which the people in this room like to hear. There's no one more capable or more qualified for this role. He deserves overwhelming bipartisan support. I suspect he'll probably get it.
1: Well, we got a lot of things from the early 90s that are coming back around on this week that we are remembering our 41st president. An attorney general for from that administration, Bill Barr, has been nominated once again by the president of the United States. That is who he was talking about there and almost certainly is going to be our next attorney general. And that was just, well, a little sliver of some of the breaking news that is taking place during the course of today. We have found out that, uh, well, Michael Cohen has no friends and uh, Mueller is wanting to stick it to him. Uh, that uh, was the. Uh, guideline in the memo if i'm uh you know just, just kind of taking a few liberties there with what Mueller ended up saying he went out of his way to say he is not a cooperating witness and uh, you know once again w- with cohen's situation he lied under oath to congress or at least that's what he's testified to recently that he lied under oath to congress and he's not lying under oath This time, even though he was faced with potentially being in jail for the rest of his life. Anyway, uh, bottom line there is that Mueller is not buying. But once again, as was the case earlier in the week with Flynn, regardless of what you see or hear in the news, there is still no Trump-Russia collusion. And the other development that's played out over the last hour or so is that we do have uh, paperwork that's been filed on Manafort. And just kind of reading through what's going on with Manafort, because remember, this is going to be the biggie. And we kind of had this trifecta that was going to play out today, right? The trifecta, Flynn early in the week, because that was going to be maybe the, the most benign. And then Cohen, that's a pretty big deal. And then Manafort, the big one, right? The Mueller team was kind of rolling them out. It's kind of like the Supreme Court rulings. You know how the Supreme Court, when they will come to their decisions at the end of a term, they'll often... Uh, You know, kind of do the time release deal where the ones that are maybe the least anticipated are the the ones that they come out with first. And and then they work up to the big one. Well, the big one is here. And guess what? Other than Manafort being accused of lying to Team Mueller and violating his plea deal. Guess what we still don't have? Trump-Russia collusion. So, again, the more things change, the more they stay the same including like our new attorney general uh, to be that was prior attorney general under President Bush. George Herbert Walker Bush. Hey, it is uh, your South Florida friend, Brian Mudd. In for the great one, Mark Levin. I host the Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach. Then I go to Miami and host uh, the Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. Might catch uh, catch me occasionally as a guest contributor on the Fox News Channel. And it's always an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. And among the things I've been talking about uh, in the first hour of the show, the Brady Law 25 years later. uh, We have had the Brady Law now in December for 25 years. And all throughout that window of 25 years, what have we also had? Well, we've had local and state governments that have also ratcheted up gun control. And what have we had along with all that additional gun control, more than we've ever had in the history of this country? Interestingly enough, we've had more violence with the use of guns than we've ever had before. Now, how does that wash? If the answer is gun control, if the answer is to put the focus on the object rather than people, Wouldn't necessarily, the more control over that device that you have, the less accessibility, wouldn't necessarily there be less of the violence associated with it. But it's stuck on stupid, that type of mentality. That an inanimate object is the real issue, rather than the people. So, last hour, I brought you some research, connecting the dots, brought to you by none other than Harvard. Harvard, back in September... That buried what really goes on here demonstrated that when people have spirituality in their lives, when they are faithful, they are far more likely to be happy to help others, not to engage in substance abuse. And the more religious religiosity they have in their lives. Well, guess what? The better those outcomes actually are. And then I also ended up uh, mentioning something that I will be frequently citing and enjoy anytime time we talk about education We were number two in the outcomes of education around the world in 1980, second only to Australia, when the Department of Education came into existence. And what's happened since then? Well, we've done nothing but decline in education outcomes worldwide at 17 most recently. But we've gone in a straight line down just progressively over the course of 38 years. But the other thing that's happened is that as any kind of reference of God, faith, what have you, has been removed from society starting with the schools, we have also seen a 300% increase in diagnosed depression. Now, walk back, walk back to that 1980 timeline for a second. In 1980, you only had 6% of Americans, only 6%, who did not identify with any religion or faith. You know what that number is today? It's up to over 14% across all demographics. But specific to millennials, you ready for this? 26% of millennials do not identify with any faith or God. More than a quarter. More than a quarter. We've gone from 6% to 26%. While we've had a 300% increase in diagnosed depression. While education outcomes have fallen from 2nd to 17th. While we have had more gun control than we've ever had in the history of this country before, and yet an escalation of what? Violence associated with guns. This is all just one big stinking coincidence, isn't it, right? I mean, none of this. That actually all works exactly in the timeline with each other. None of this is actually what's real, right? And yet, even Harvard, which came out with this study, buried it. Why? Why? Now, what's also interesting about that 26% number of millennials, well, think about this. Millennials were born in 1981 or later. They are the first generation of Americans that were completely raised in the era of the Department of Education. You think that one's a coincidence, too? And then you consider another accredited study that came out demonstrating that millennials are 25% more likely to be diagnosed with depression than any other generation. I mean, that's just another big coincidence on top of all these other coincidences, right? I mean, you get the point. Harvard's research showed the connection directly. You got corroborating evidence over the past 38 years that demonstrates exactly what's been going on in our society. I mean, if you want to try to find out a way to deny it, you're welcome to try. I'm all ears. But there's too much here. I mean, who are you kidding? So why aren't we having these conversations? Because until we talk about the people, until we talk about the premise, and until we figure out, hey, why is rather than sitting here and trying to treat mental health and, and trying to figure out why we have so many people have mental health problems and trying to figure out how we, we drug them or whatever, how we how about we actually stop mental health illness? Well, how do we do that? Oh, I don't know. Let's go back to all this research. Huh? Imagine this. If people believe in something greater than themselves, they're uh, 300% less likely to have mental health issues. Back to you, and no drugs required. But why don't we have these conversations? And and again, it's rhetorical. Two sides to stories, one side to Facts, and uh, let's see. Let's go to Johnny, who's very patiently been waiting online in Nebraska. Johnny, go. Doing fine. How are you? Hey, all good.
8: I just had a couple of comments on the um, on what you're talking about, and uh, I I think uh, I'm about 78 years old. And when I grew up going to high school and years after that, all the guys carried guns in their pickups and stuff to school and stuff. We never had anybody misuse uh, it. But you know what's happened since. Oh, about the 80s, is kids have uh, lots of time on their hands, and then the computer comes along, and they play these computer games, which are extremely violent. And then all the TV shows have become nothing but violence, and they get more uh, gruesome by the week, trying to uh, shock you more. And I just think people have gotten hardened to it, and a certain percentage of those kids that – uh, they act out what they see on uh, the video games and stuff, and they're hard yes. to, to kill and It's just... You, you
1: bring up a good point. You, you bring up a good point, which is, you know, simply having a mental health issue does not necessarily equal okay. I'm going to go out there and really harm a bunch of people, right? So then you you begin to talk about catalyst. So yeah, you, you're probably right that when you talk about video games, movies, what have you, that that can end up being a, a bit of a catalyst when you already have somebody who has a predisposition to being disturbed. And yeah, even about the school ground. You know, I'm I'm uh, not near your age, but even. Uh, being of a a different generation, being an Xer, shoot, I I was still doing, you know, cops and robbers on the playground at school. I mean, we were running around with the toy guns. I mean, you know that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, And and again, what's changed? What's changed? Well, we took faith. We took God out of schools, out of society. We have the success based mental health issues. And then as you uh, then enter the, the video game type of conversation, you know, there is research. That supports it as potentially being a catalyst. And, you know, for folks who will say, hey, there's nothing to that. I mean, come on. Anecdotally, think about this one. You ever, uh, maybe it was like a, a Fast and Furious movie or whatever. One of those types of movies. You ever watch one of those? You leave the movie theater and you get behind the wheel of your car? How do you feel? Feel like you're ready to put that thing on cruise control? You're feeling a little jacked up, Right. That's the difference, is you can relate to some of those uh, experiences. Now, not being disturbed, you're not going to harm somebody else, but that uh, could be a a catalyst off of a bigger issue. All right, uh, we'll continue this conversation coming up next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for The Great One. Mudd Lovin'.
6: Bill Barr, one of the most respected jurists in the country, highly respected lawyer, former attorney general under the Bush administration. Um, a terrific man, a terrific person, a brilliant man. Uh, I did not know him for until recently when I went through the process of looking at people. And he was my first choice from day one. Respected by Republicans and respected by Democrats, he will be nominated for the United States Attorney General.
1: President Trump talking about his expectations with his nominee to be our next Attorney General. Someone who's been there before, as he mentioned, Bill Barr, who served as Attorney General under George Herbert Walker Bush, ironically enough, as we are wrapping up a week that was highlighted by the remembrance of our 41st president. Brian Mudd, in for the great one, Mark Levin. You may tweet at me at Brian Mudd Radio. We've been talking about guns still not killing people, but people still killing people. The Brady Law, 25 years later, it's been 25 years, and all the other gun controls gone into place, and the real causation of the violence that, in many cases, will. Uh, occur with the use of guns and what's really behind it. Mental health, sure, and why we have the mental health problems, which we can actually track back, and we have Harvard studies to show this, to a lack of faith in society, which started with the Department of Education coming into existence in 1980. Uh, so, yeah, we'll walk through the entire timeline. It's funny how things happen. Uh, by the way, speaking of someone who's been a victim of someone with serious mental issues who carried out violence with a gun, Steve Scalise, uh, the House Majority Whip. He is the featured guest on Life, Liberty, and Live-In this Sunday on the Fox News Channel. Now, if you don't uh, already watch it live, do what I do. Make sure, make sure you hit it up on your DVR, 10 p.m. Eastern, Life, Liberty, Live-In on the Fox News Channel. Again, Steve Scalise, House Majority Whip this Sunday. All right, and uh, let's go to Sam in Tennessee. Sam, go.
2: Hey, thanks for taking the call. You bet. I was listening. The thing I have, the thing I want to bring out is these numbers that the Brady campaign likes to throw out. Numbers can be manipulated to say anything you want. And when you look at the total number of gun deaths, yes, that's bad. However, how many of those are a, a single mom defending her children against a home invasion? How many of those are a person defending themselves against a carjacking? How many of those are against a, a police officer uh, in a legitimate uh, shooting of a criminal? And But they just lump them all into a total number. It's kind of like saying we have so many thousands of people dying yeah. in car accidents. But we don't break it down.
1: You have a point, uh, Sam. A couple things about that. So if you walk back to the 1990s, there actually was a comprehensive study that was done by the Clinton administration, and they found out that there actually were far more defensive use of firearms than those that were uh, perpetrated against innocent individuals. Then there was another uh, nationwide study that was done uh, several years ago. Ford State University was part of it. The the round trip total is that there are over two million defensive use of firearms every year in the United States. So you're right. The true the truth of the matter is that most of the defensive uses are not statistics because they don't actually discharge the weapon. It's simply exactly. showing the ability to defend themselves. Exactly. So you're, a, you're 100% right on that point.
2: Who's the uh, criminologist, Who uh, uh, Gary Cleck, I think, who actually pointed out it was 2.5 million times where a firearm right. was used to, def- to deter a criminal act where a shot was never filed, fired. But you don't hear that. Because no, it does not, it does right. not serve. It does not serve the the liberal me, uh, media's agenda.
1: Yeah, yes, Sam. Uh, and so, I appreciate it. I appreciate the call, and, and you're right on that. The the one thing that is uh, different, and I want to separate the two, is you are absolutely right on the legitimate use, defensive use of firearms. But that still doesn't address the issue that we do have with the exacerbation of mental health issues in this country, and really correct. what's at the crux of it. And so, I in addressing that issue too, that's where I come back on the other side. So, appreciate it, we and just, I wanted to. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I wanted to uh, get Gretchen in real quick. Uh, Gretchen in Alabama, go.
7: I also wanted you to take a look mental issue-wise when it comes to medications. There's a lot of people out there that are using medications nowadays that weren't available in the past. Medications do a lot of good for people, but if you take a look at people who are out in society now that are using medications, um, we'll take a look at my own family. Um, My Asperger's runs in my husband's side of the family. And he often yeah. stated that in the past, if, if he had been born years ago and didn't have the medications that he had, he never would have yeah. had
1: a family. I, I, I appreciate it. And, and we are treating symptoms with medication. I say if you look to God, you'll find answers. If you look to government, you'll fail. Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mark Levin. With a daily fake news dump pouring
3: through your TV, mobile phones and computers, you may have missed some real news like the recent study in the journal Cell Metabolism. Scientists suspected a correlation between growing rates of obesity and processed foods, but what this study discovered was that these foods also appear to lead people to overeat. Here's the bottom line. You need fresh fruits and vegetables in your diet.
0: adult dosage of the Constitution. The Mark Levine Show. Call him now at 877 381
6: Illegal immigration is a threat to the well-being of every American community, threatening innocent families, overwhelming public resources, and draining the federal treasury. Congress must fully fund border security and the year-ending funding bill. We have to, we have to get this done. They're playing games. They're playing political games. I actually think the politics of what they're doing is very bad for them. But we're going to very soon find out.
1: And guess what? You agree. And actually most of us agree. The most pervasive form of bias in media is omission. Not what you're presented with. And on this particular issue, illegal immigration, the border, the Honduran caravan. The craziness that we just saw play out that illustrates just how absurd our system and things have become to where you have a pregnant woman who scales the border wall to give birth. And that works. That's an effective strategy. That shows you how back crap crazy things have become in this country. But guess what? You're not the crazy one. It's just that you're not given the real information. There was actually a brilliant piece that was pinned by one Scott Rasmussen the pollster in town hall headline to the story the public supports border security our elites do not an excerpt from a story eight out of ten voters eight out of ten all right nationwide believe that illegal immigration is bad for america now where have you heard that where have you heard that 80 percent of americans say yeah illegal immigration bad thing (laughs) you might think that would be news right Guess not. Might not fit the narrative, right? So anyway, uh, this was research conducted by Scott Rasmussen and Harris X. He said two days uh, after the initial storming of the border wall, right? So this was even after the the rush at the border. 80% say illegal immigration, a bad thing. And by the way, only 25% of voters believe that the Border Patrol's actions are too harsh. You know how you always hear about how awful and evil the Border Patrol and ICE and only a quarter of Americans think that they have acted too aggressively. In fact, more people, 43 percent, think that the Border Patrol is too lenient. I guess you haven't heard that one either, have you? Now, uh, Rasmussen and Harris also found that Mexico's offer of asylum most Americans believe should be good enough. For the migrants in that caravan and anybody else, they're trying to escape persecution. Uh, since they've already been provided with a safe haven, just 38% of voters think the migrants should be eligible for the asylum. So have you heard that number? Only 38% think they should even be able to apply. And when it comes to legal immigration, that's also something we can agree on. 81% say, yeah, legal immigration is a good thing. So, this isn't terribly complicated, is it? 81% legal immigration, good. 80% of Americans, 80%. Illegal immigration, bad. Now, are you surprised? So, recently, it was, uh, I believe, two weeks ago. Yeah, it would have been two weeks ago tonight. I brought you in a story called The Honduran Caravan Exposed. The real information about how That caravan came to be a scam front political organization called Pueblo San Fronteras that fundraised north and south up and down California until they got all the money they needed. And then they went down to Honduras to recruit a bunch of people to be part of this as part of a political stunt. And I was telling you that every time you hear the caravan reported on and what really goes on there and you don't hear about the organizers and you don't hear about the name Pueblo San Fronteras. It's a, a news source that is not telling you the truth. They have a website. <laughs> I mean, you can go there and actually they have. Uh, they even have a link. I, I guess for the super sophisticated caravanners to be, you know, if you are you know online and you like to be part of a caravan, you too can sign up with Pueblos and Fronteras. I mean, that's how absurd this thing is. Again, omission. They weren't telling you the truth. And, and this is all part of that incredible information disconnect between the real America the pathetic excuse for news coverage that most organizations spew the failure of our elected officials to actually do what we want them to do. This is something else we need to have a conversation about. Think about it. If 80% of Americans want something, why the hell don't we get it? That cuts across politics. That cuts across politics. Again, I'll take you back to the headline of Rasmussen's story. Public supports border security. Elites do not. Yeah, I guess so. You got both political parties that like it being an issue where, of course, we know leftists simply want them as voters. Now, the other hypocrisy of this, of course, is that, well, Democrats themselves even did support it once upon a time, because, yeah, back in 2006, when you did have. I mean, the one thing that is so instructive about what's been going on with this caravan is so people have learned, oh, there is at least something of a wall in some parts of the border. Because, remember, I mean, the wall is crazy talk. That's just, uh, you know, Ruffian Trump and his crazy talk, right? Well, well, no. We do have a border wall. We have had a border wall. And, oh, look at this. Back in 2006, Senators Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, among most Democrats, voted to fund the wall. Here's what sucks about this. Here's what really sucks about this. Well, we see the 80% number when it comes to Americans. Because when you break it down to Trump's wall, well, suddenly Americans break off in political corners. And so all the leftists will go, no, I don't like Trump's wall. Well, but you support the security. You support keeping illegal immigrants at bay. You don't think these folks in the caravan should be granted asylum or even eligible for it. Here's the, the crap of it. Had Barack Obama proposed the wall just as Trump did, maybe with less flair, because you know who could, who could project such beauty within our wall with doors? Democrats would have latched onto it. That's what sucks here in all this. So here's the dilemma. Almost everyone in the real America actually wants to end illegal immigration. Politicians on both sides want to use it as a political issue. Over 90% of news media has a political preference to oppose the president. Uh, I'm not just saying that, by the way. Newsbusters, the folks at the Media Research Center, the average amount of coverage of President Trump that has been positive in mainstream news media, 9%. So, yes, 91% of the coverage of Trump is negative. Uh, Now, most Americans, unfortunately, will not demand accountability from politicians because, again, They break into their political corners and the media will use it and the politicians will use that as well because that's how they can keep this thing alive and keep it an issue causing the gridlock. That's where we have to be smarter. We have to educate people. We have to take the bull by the horns and realize that all these people actually work for us. And on this particular note, there's more specific to the caravan. I mentioned that most Americans are not supportive of a style, uh, asylum status. Well, get this. You have 18%, 18% that have believed that they should have been allowed into the United States until an asylum status hearing had been determined. Now, good luck ever finding those people again. So the way this has been portrayed in the media versus what we actually want, it all kind of lines up, doesn't it? You have 80% that think illegal immigration is bad. You only have 18% of Americans that thought that the caravan actually should have been allowed in. But what does the news coverage of this, by and large, make you think? Interesting, right? And that's not the only piece here, because we have even more on immigration, on the caravan. Oh, that's right. You might have heard this early in the week. The census bombshell that actually demonstrated that Trump's wall Would save money. Now, the Center for Immigration Studies, their bombshell early this week from Census Info, uh, painted a picture of what happens when illegal immigrants get here. Guess what happens? They get on government assistance. Now, illegal immigrants and non-citizens, and to be fair, there is a difference between non-citizens and illegal immigration in some instances. Not all, but some. But there is one thing that unites the two classes. It's not legal for any of them to be on government welfare. Not any of them. But most are. So think about that for a moment. Not legal for illegal immigrants or non citizens to be on government welfare, but most are. Now, some of the keys from the Center for Immigration Studies information it was 18 pages long, just three points. 2014, you had 63% of households that were headed by a non-citizen, The U.S. at least one welfare program. 63%. And then they're not eligible. Then you take a look at food programs. 45% of non-citizens on food programs. How about welfare, right? The actual cash piece of welfare. Straight up money. Now, the idea here, and, and this is what we've been told, even about illegal immigrants, well, I mean, you know, the most, most of them are good people, they work hard, and they're just here being being nice, wonderful folks. Which, by the way, in, in terms of not embracing false premises, think about this one for a moment. Why is it that we should believe that someone whose first action in this country is to break the law, why is it that we necessarily believe that once they have broken the law to enter here, they, they suddenly go, ah, and we are going to adhere to all these other ones? I mean, does that really add up? I'm not saying they're necessarily all bad people, not by a long shot. However, they also aren't, by the numbers, what they've been painted to be according to folks and friendly media and many of the politicians that, again, like to use this stuff as an issue. Because if it really were about getting here and just working hard in that American dream that they illegally tried to obtain, what would happen the longer they would stay here? Well, there would be less need for the illegal government assistance they're obtaining, Right. But uh uh-uh, uh, that's not what's happening. For those who are non citizens and illegal immigrants that have been in the United States for fewer than 10 years, right at 50% of them use a minimum of one welfare program. Okay? 50% under 10 years. So what happens when you have someone who is here more than 10 years? It's at 70%. It's even higher, 70%. So what's happening when well, you have people? That are coming here illegally and some non-citizens simply gaming the system. That get on the system and apparently like it and then end up getting even more on the system with time. That's what actually happens. Now, in terms of the programs that are being used, financial welfare, housing, Medicaid, SNAP, WIC, the school lunch program. You think about that for a minute. How often do we talk about those programs? Oh, we have shortages. You know, we, we need affordable housing. Oh, Medicaid shortages in, in states all across the country. Oh, the school lunch program, an underfunded school lunch program. How much of that is technically being stolen? How much is being stolen by illegal immigrants and non citizens that are not eligible for those programs? This is not a victimless, uh, victimless crime. It's being stolen from you. And the top three states, California, New York, and Texas. And the estimated cost per non-citizen receiving welfare benefits per year, you're ready for this one, about $5,700. So that places the annual cost of the abuse at just under $27 billion. Remember how much it would cost for Trump's border wall? Right around 25 So yes, you can make the case that Trump's border wall would actually pay for itself inside of a year. Two sides stories, one side to facts. I'll be back with more of those next. This is Brian Mudd, and for the great one. Mudd Lovin. Never been an FBI interview ever in the history of mankind that was done in public. So, why Jim Comey, who I, the last time I was in a public hearing with him, over a hundred times he said, I cannot answer in this setting. Why Mr. Transparency wants
2: to go back to a setting where he knows he cannot answer the questions is befuddling
1: to me. Well, Trey Gowdy on James Comey, who did Stonewall today, not answering questions behind closed doors at the behest of other folks that might have a vested interest. One of his attorneys actually for the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice happens to have two folks that were, well, persons of interest in the questioning by Comey. That happens to be Rod Rosenstein and Bruce Orr. So the corruption continues. And as I was just talking about the abuse of government assistance programs by those that are not eligible. And a majority of folks who are not here illegally, a majority of folks who are not here illegally are on at least one form of government assistance. And it happens to total more per year than the wall would even cost. Why should we expect accountability in this country when it's so selectively applied? When James Comey can be a co-conspirator, sign off on four FISA warrants, not answer questions, walk around free, Continue to put out books that uh, should have been labeled Tall Tales by James Comey, rather than you know whatever a uh, uh, higher uh, higher loyalty. I guess because I'm tall and I hold my hand. But you know th- this is the issue we have: we either a country laws and we enforce them, or not, and we end up in the mess that we're in. Uh, let's go to Raj in Vienna, Virginia. Raj, go.
5: Brian you touched on some very important topics, and I'm glad you're giving us the opportunity of participating in that. Absolutely. This is not my original. This has been reported repeatedly on the campaign trail by various candidates. The idea of self-reporting. So these people who are in the shadows, that they tell us that they're there? declare themselves there and self-reporting and then self repatriate in 30 days if they don't there's a graded fine for every day they stay overstay
1: it, well it's an interesting idea and you know it's something that many folks would call amnesty uh, so that has been the debate the long uh, lasting debate do you have the existing guidelines would say, hey, you have to lead this country before you can start the paperwork. Or can you start the paperwork if you want to be legal inside the United States? That is a dividing line in a line of demarcation. And the question is, do you believe that's amnesty or do you not believe that's amnesty? And uh, ultimately, we still never really seem to answer those questions because the issue never really seems to advance beyond, well, let's just say a House vote that goes nowhere. Let's go to Tony in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, Tony, go. Hey. Hey, Tony. Oh, hey, hi, Don. Uh, listen,
8: I, I was one of these former employers where I hired the, uh, the illegals. Uh, it was the thing to do back then. And uh, I'll I tell you what turned me off is I was in constant arguments with them about why they were here. Uh, my family uh, immigrated from Italy, and uh, they were waving American flags on the ship. Amen. Not Mexican or flags.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's a a valid point. I mean, when you're coming here because you want what this country has to offer rather than taking advantage of what this country has to offer, a little bit of a difference there, and that is another part of the problem we have as you take a look at all cities, states have been taken over. I am Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin.
0: From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader,
4: Mark Levin.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, please bow your heads as we observe a moment of silence to honor the events that occurred at this moment, 77 years ago, today. December 7th, 1941. So we remember Pearl Harbor Day today. First, a whole generation of people that might not have seen an iconic movie that could be a teachable moment. Schindler's List. It's actually back in movie theaters. And for any kids that have not seen that, put that on the agenda this weekend. Make sure they have perspective. About what really took place back then. You certainly cannot count on the education establishment to deliver. And what's even more frustrating. In the context of politics today. Is that what was at the root of World War II. Is exactly what we're fighting today. It's socialism. Now people will. Hide behind the idea that, uh, well, Hitler was a nationalist and, you know, like uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Andrew Gilmore, they're, they're democratic. Democratic, so that makes it much different. Which is the, the biggest BS argument out there. How was it, how was it that Hitler was elected? People voted for him, right? I mean, democratically, to the extent that there's a democratic process, Right. So, hmm, how is that necessarily different than saying I'm a democratic socialist? Well, no, I'm not necessarily suggesting that Bernie Sanders is out to, uh, you know, bring back the, the Nazi party in the United States. But the point remains that that system of government, what it entails, what it enables for those that are in power and the destruction that it causes right around the world to this day. Is something that is not understood and it's not taught. Hey, it's uh, Brian Mudd in for the Great One, Mark Levin. I am the host of The Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach. Then I turn around an hour after I get done with that show and I do The Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. Uh, Guest host, uh, guest contributor to the Fox News Channel, and and it's always an honor to be here with you. And this is something that is uh, really at the crux of this next generation and where we're going. When we take a look at some of the information, some of the research out there on socialism today, it really is instructive as much as it is concerning. I impugned the education establishment earlier in the show as it pertained to the Department of Education, gun control, removing God from society, and increase in mental health issues. In this particular case, not teaching what socialism is as a system of government, what happens under it is allowing it to be viewed in a positive light. Now, anytime you start getting data, any polling data, any survey stuff, you got to take the information in context. For example, if you just simply take polling on, let's say, President Obama uh, for a moment, if you took a look at President Obama's ratings on the person, the favorability ratings, they were generally positive, but if he actually pulled on his policy, overwhelmingly negative. And if you take a look at President Trump, it's pretty much the opposite. His favorability, his personal ratings are lower, but on policy, solid majorities of Americans are with him. When you take a look at what we are seeing on socialism, holy cow, does it tell a story? And it really explains how, in Florida, we did have a close call with a Democratic socialist in hiding by the name of Andrew Gillum. Why we have Bernie Sanders that once again is emerging as a frontrunner for the Democrats in 2020. Which is ironic because Bernie Sanders, the first time he ever was a Democrat, was when he ran for president as one. In this one particular case, Gallup has some really interesting information. Gallup is the oldest active pollster out there. They started in the 1930s. So some of the questions they ask, they're the only entity out there that can provide perspective across all kinds of generations, including the greatest generation. The first time that Gallup had an accredited poll on the question of socialism was 1949. 1949, all right? Just a handful of years after the greatest generation put an end to, to Hitler and, and put an end to World War II. And the most common answer, when, when Americans were asked, what does socialism mean to you? There were a bunch of different answers. So this was the, the, the grouping that Gallup put together. Government ownership or control. Government ownership of utilities. Everything controlled by the government. State control of business. Okay, that's what the average American in 1949 viewed socialism as government ownership for control, government ownership of utilities, everything controlled by the government, state control of business. They had just dealt with it. They got it. All told, only 15 percent of Americans answered with anything, anything that possibly could have been construed as a positive. All right. That's it. So where are we today? Well, Gallup recently wrapped up on this question on socialism, and guess what the most common answer today is? Equality. Equal standing for everybody, all equal in rights. Holy crap. How different is that versus the folks in 1949 who got it? All in, 40% of Americans right now answered with a response that could be viewed favorably, About socialism and not even democratic socialism, by the way, just socialism. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there? See, there's a funny thing, because the left will always take a look and go, you can't use Hitler because, again, it was the nationalist thing. And uh, I mean, look, you've had other socialists and, and they didn't do what he did. Well, they all do different versions of similar things. What are the active socialist countries, those that have fully engaged in socialism? See, it didn't matter if it was Hitler in Germany in World War II or if it's Maduro in Venezuela today or the government in the Dominican Republic or the Castros in Cuba. That all leads to destruction, destruction in whatever the desire is of those at the top. If it was Hitler, obviously, nazism. If it's Maduro, wants state control of all private property. Ditto what happened in Cuba and what continues. The the funny thing about Cuba, you might have just heard. They just got 18-year-old technology yesterday. That's right. You now have access to 3G. 3G in Cuba. It's still censored, by the way. It's still government-controlled 3G. But that's the big story. And here's the other uh, real fun fact that goes along with it. You see, the the state-regulated salary in Cuba is $30 per month, $30 U.S. per month. That's all you're allowed to earn there. Oh, by the way, and how much does this 18-year-old 3G technology cost? Well, with the state-run telecom company, $7 $7 per month. So, out of the $30 that you're allowed to earn a month, if you want 3G, you spend $7 of your 30 per month to get it. And then you get to see whatever it is that they want you to see. Man, there's some sweet action there. Which, as an aside... For all the folks who went, oh, you know, hey, I'm going to be like the Kardashians and hang out in Cuba and do selfies. Guess what happened when all that tourist money went to Cuba? Well, the Cuban government, which had been in trouble because they had been in recession for years. Well, they actually restored their coffers with that. And they started seizing some of the businesses that had started to break out in Cuba. So folks are actually worse off for the American tourism having gone to Cuba. Everybody who patronizes Cuba, what you're actually doing is repressing Cubans. I mean. Details, right? Something else that uh, isn't probably taught to you and is, I mean, I'm shocked, but omitted in mainstream news media. But here's the thing. Speaking about Cuba, the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, I actually think that our best chance forward, given that now 40% of Americans view socialism as something positive, as we are becoming increasingly a country of legal immigrants from some countries like those, they're going to be the saviors. Because we have a public education establishment that has abjectly failed us on this and any number of other different topics. We have no confidence unless we break the back of the public education establishment, as it sits and go to vouchers we I mean, crazy talk here, but you actually as a taxpayer and a parent can choose how to use that money for the education of your child rather than the NEA. But they get it. Folks from Cuba, folks from the Dominican, folks from Venezuela, because they fled and their families fled socialism and communism. I get a, a real taste of it being here in South Florida. And it's also the key to why Florida turned out the way it did. In this past election cycle Let's explain a little bit of what goes on there And the misconceptions And how they can be the building block Not just to save us from socialism in this country But also of conservative politics Yeah, that's right, conservative politics They could also be the future of a good Republican Party I'll talk about that next And I'm Brian Mutt, In for the great one Mutt Lovin
7: Hatred that strong is the hatred toward Israel so strong that you'll defend a terrorist organization?
1: Nikki Haley at the UN today talking about Hamas, and we know what the answer is there. I Remember uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. A prime minister who said uh, when he was asked why aren't you talking with Hamas, and he said, "Well, when the conversation begins with." You wanting uh, us to be eliminated, there's really nothing to negotiate or discuss there. And so the answer, unfortunately, is yes. And that's where we have to get real, that there are plenty of people that, given the opportunity, want the elimination of others, including the elimination of culture, the elimination of what we have in terms of opportunity. And that is exactly what, 77 years later, we need to be aware of with socialism. Uh, That is, ultimately, how we ended up with World War II, how he ended up with Pearl Harbor. It's a combination of the two, your cousin, uh, communism, and, and socialism. And back then, to bring you the information, in the immediate years after World War II, almost every American completely understood how awful socialism was. However, these days, the most common answer is something positive. 40% of Americans, now, not even, not even with the quasi bullcrap term democratic socialism. That is it's about because that's the right way to do socialism. It just hasn't been done right. But uh, 40% on just socialism say uh, something positive. We've we got real issues there. I mentioned uh, before the break that I thought, and I think, and I believe, that many, many of the South American Caribbean islands, those countries are going to have the potential to be our saviors because the people who are legal, legal immigrants – From places like Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, they get it. And they educate other people, especially people in many of the so-called Hispanic communities. Now, something that I mentioned frequently in the run-up to the election. In fact, I ended up doing a BBC World News special on this particular topic. Also ended up addressing it uh, multiple occasions on the Fox News channel as well. Hispanic means about 30 different things here in South Florida because you do have all the Caribbean islands. You do have Cuba. You do have Central America. You do have South America. And the interest and the understanding and the politics of each are different. And in many instances, what happens is an oversimplification. People just use the label Hispanic. And the idea is that, well, Hispanics vote for Democrats. And the funny thing's happened in Florida over the past uh, dozen years. The voting population of Hispanics in Florida has more than doubled since 2006. More than doubled. Now, given that we already had close elections in Florida, if you had a doubling of the Hispanic population and Hispanics vote for Democrats, then how is it that Donald Trump won Florida? And here's a stat for you. For the first time since, not 1968, but 1868, in January, Florida will have a Republican governor and two Republican U.S. senators. How would that be possible if Hispanics just break for Democrats? See, what happened is the oversimplification did not turn out to be true. And a lot of my education, certainly to listeners here in South Florida, but also to those nationally who were interested in the information, is that you really have to get down to the individual interest. And what we were seeing is that overwhelmingly you're having Hispanics from those countries that have socialism, that have communism, that would not support the Democrats, and specifically Andrew Gillum, who was the Democratic Socialist in hiding, the Bernie Sanders candidate for governor in Florida. And they would go out of their way to let other people know what that meant. That is the template, not just in Florida, but across the country. And it's something that people need to be aware of. Yes, if you're just talking about Mexicans, what we see, whether it's here in South Florida or Texas or California, wherever, is that, yes, overwhelmingly, Mexicans, given the opportunity to vote, will vote for Democrats and commonly do end up on government assistance programs. Uh, that that hopefully is something that could be changed. But nevertheless, when you're talking about many other uh, demographics, it's not the case at all. And so the outreach, the understanding, the listening and using their life experience for what we're not getting in our schools, what socialism really is, is the best path forward, not just for this country to beat back the fact that the most common answer is now positive when it comes to socialism, but also For the Republican Party to be, once again, the party of immigrants, the party that understands opportunity and that will end up reflecting the values of the people who are coming here legally, wanting everything that this country has to offer. Get some of your thoughts coming up here next. I'm Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mark Levin.
4: unapologetic patriot, and unapologetic constitutionalist. You can reach him at 877-381-3811. The economy is now in a 3% plus trajectory.
3: Uh, Since President Trump came in, the seven quarters, not the first quarter in 2017, he has no power over there, but the seven quarters, uh, we're running, I believe the number is 3.1%. And it's 3.3% so far for 2018.
1: Larry Kudlow, top economic advisor to the president. And, uh, well, okay, so he's talking about the economy. A lot of people are getting freaked out, of course, because, well, the market's had an especially bad week. Now... Perspective is key in all this stuff, and we take a look at the markets. Where are we? Well, we're essentially right where we started the year. For as bad as things seem right now, uh, so uh, you know, in in the grand scheme of reality, not necessarily that big of a deal. And Larry Kudlow also saying, "Hey, uh, by the way, by the way, you notice we have this like three percent economy going on now. Maybe we're not going to grow at three percent forever, but we are for 2018, and that's going to be the first time that we've grown at three percent or greater." Since 2005, this as we're taking a look at unemployment rates that are, as I was just talking about Hispanics, the second lowest unemployment rate for Hispanics in the history of the United States of America in the jobs report today. That was uh, considered a bit disappointing. What a lot of people didn't take a look at is it was such a huge number in the prior month that today's number that came in a little bit softer. If you average the two months out together, it's an awesome report. I mean, that's that's part of what's being lost here. But what was interesting, uh, I was actually speaking with uh, or or set to speak with Stephen Moore, who is part of the economic team for President Trump on Tuesday. And when the bottom started to fall out in the market on Tuesday, he said, uh, got a note. I'm running to the White House. And when I talked to him uh, on Wednesday, he said, I was literally running to the White House. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry, I wasn't able to connect. And I said, all right, well, you, you tell me. You tell me. Uh, should we be concerned? Something different here. Uh, Stephen Moore, not just uh, economic advisor to the president, but also uh, the founder of the Club for Growth and the chief economist at the Heritage Foundation, one of the three smartest economists, in my opinion, in the country. Not many people, not many economists are, are worth a darn, but he is. And uh, he said, like, I'm not a stock picker. However, where there's an opportunity on dips, that's what I'll tell you. So that's coming direct from Stephen Moore himself. Didn't exactly sound like the guy who was worried about the economy falling out of bed. Uh, So, uh, yeah, a little food for thought there for you. Now, talking about immigration, talking about the. Hispanic socialist considerations just broke down for you in the previous segment. Some of the considerations that I see in South Florida, given that we have pretty much all Hispanic constituencies under one roof and the considerations are different for all of them. And that the best perspective I see on government, on our government and what this country offers does not come from Americans born and raised anymore. Certainly does not come from our education establishment. Does, does come from legal immigrants from a number of different countries, including Venezuela, the Dominican Republic and Cuba, among others. But see that commonly represented with people understand socialism, communism far better than Americans do and also how they were instrumental not just in their votes, but also educating others within the so-called Hispanic community about what socialism was when we had a threat from it in Florida. And how the culmination, despite all the bullcrap polling that was out there because they didn't know what they were doing because they were treating all Hispanics equally in the polling, how Florida is entering 2019 with a Republican governor and two Republican U.S. senators for the first time since 1868, despite the largest percentage of the Hispanic population the state's ever had, and a doubling of the Hispanic voting bloc since 2006. Again, there's a big story to be told in there, uh, and uh, it's the the story of what we have to offer and what socialism really is. Let's go to Andrew in California. Andrew, go. Hey, Brian,
4: thanks for having me on. I yeah. uh, wanted to bring up a couple things that I think Republicans and conservatives need to get better at when it comes to arguing against socialism. I think we all know the incentive argument that, you know, if you have 25% of the population working to feed 75%, that 25% is going to work less. But there's two other arguments that I think are really powerful. One is one that Thomas Sowell's talked about a lot and that Hayek talked about. That's the knowledge problem. Knowledge is not centralized. It's decentralized. There's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people and businesses doing things that you and I don't even know exist that are important in the process of delivering us the goods and services that we desire. And the second one is the calculation problem. And this is what Ludwig von Mises talked about. He has a great book, it's a short 90 pages, called Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. And the calculation problem basically states that because people's preferences are constantly changing, and because goods are scarce and have alternative uses, the price system is the only system that doesn't lead to chaos when it comes to economic allocation. And particularly when it, when you look at socialist countries, this is what you see. You see a breakdown in the price system. You see governments taking over businesses, trying to do the job that those businesses did, and they're unable to calculate how to allocate goods efficiently. And this is really, really important stuff that we've got to get better at explaining to people. I think the Aust- particularly the Austrian economists have a lot to say when it comes to arguing against socialism, and conservatives need to be better at reading their stuff, at understanding what they're saying, and at articulating those arguments to to fellow conservatives and to to independents, and to try to win over some of the Democrats to, to help them to understand why socialism fails every single time it has ever been tried. It's because you cannot do it without a price system. You cannot have efficient allocation of economic goods without a free price system.
1: Andrew, this is where I want you to tell me that you're a professor.
4: I'm not. I'm not. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a a high school. I'm a a high school dropout.
1: Oh, good Lord. Well, how can we put you into uh, that position today would be my thought and uh, about about the ability to educate outside of the education establishment, given what you just said. uh, I think you just nailed it. Um, Well done. uh, And you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny because we will talk about the most common form of bias in media is omission, but it's also true in the education establishment as well. And uh, even to Andrew's point, I, I was laughing to myself when he's talking about it because I walked out of a collegiate economics course. My background is in small business, and I actually have a background in financial analysis as well. Uh, so you know, I, I'm well versed in all of this stuff, and I'm I'm in there with a college professor who's arguing capital formation and how business is executed with me and it ended up shutting me down didn't want to hear the truth so I just walked out of the class and I'm sitting there thinking if that's the economics professor how screwed are we everywhere else well and we've seen the answer again we're screwed enough that the most common answer when someone is asked what socialism is is equality and everybody doing better Uh, Are you stinking kidding me? I mean, that's a real problem, and that does get back to the education. And uh, Andrew makes some really good points there. Let's go to Diane in Colorado. Uh, Diane, go.
7: Yes, uh, so I'm calling because you're talking about the illegal immigration and the benefits. Yep. And I'm 66. I became disabled in 2009. I had low income because I wasn't able to work. My daughter and her husband worked their asses off to pay taxes. I have to document every single doctor's receipt the doctor's letter for five programs, between 55 and 200 pages. I have five crates of files, and I will have to do this the rest of my life. I am low income at 150% below the poverty level. I am eligible for these things, but what infuriates me, and I'm just reading on the internet now, that the food assistance program, the states are told to be favorable to the non citizen. And this was under Trump, Obama, and it's still under uh, Trump. And I don't know how this can change, because it's, if I could just, people come in here illegally with not, you know, uh, nothing, nothing to check, and they get these benefits. And I have to document thousands of pages every year and use uh, fax and printers and scan it to keep them so that they get, don't get audited. And I'm thinking, you know, this is bad policy, and that, you know, it's not, it's not, it's inequitable. And I'm getting older, and I can't keep track of all this and all the regulations. And yet, they come over here. I mean, if they were going to Ellis Island in the 20s and 30s, if they had a flea on them, they wouldn't let them in. So I'm infuriated by this policy. It's still standing, and they're told, the states are told, to favor the non-citizen.
1: May uh, May God bless you. Best wishes to you. And you, <laughs> you illustrate some really good points there at the same time. So yes. a couple couple things. When I was walking through the abuse of those programs by non-citizens, I pointed out that it's not just that we all as taxpayers are victims of those that are illegally receiving the assistance, but then the individuals that are actually in need of those programs who right. are so often hearing it's difficult to obtain and everything else, and you're right. illustrating that point. You're a victim of what they are taking advantage of, and you also illustrate the point as well about uh, how much further we have to go in government. I, I have long believed that the most important function of Donald Trump as president of the United States is not even going to be uh, his legacy on the United States Supreme Court or the economy, no matter how well things go, even economically. I firmly believe that the single most important function of him is going to be to root out the deep state. We have seen how much corruption we had at all different levels of the government. But part of what's difficult as you're talking about, yes, we're we're actually having uh, impropriety that is being perpetuated by the government programs themselves. Still, those that are administering them. Well, yeah, I mean, take a look. We still have co-conspirators that are at high ranking uh, levels of the Justice Department. We've got real problems. So as the president is battling issues at those agencies and at that level, Yes, when you start getting into some of these assistance programs, you absolutely have administrators that are not doing the right thing, and that's all part of it. Hopefully we have accountability with so many of these agencies that by the time he is done, we will have uh, you know, the, the truth and accountability we need across the spectrum in the uh, political uh, establishment, especially with these programs as well. And if we have real uh, immigration reform, including a border wall, for example, and we're able to really crank down on illegal immigration, a lot of this problem will take care of itself over time. And uh, Charlie had a real interesting perspective here. Charlie in Wyoming, go.
5: Yeah, Brian, amen to all that stuff you're saying about uh, the people from Venezuela and uh, Cuba could teach a lot of people some hard lessons here. A real quick story from my old uh, trip to the Soviet Union. I was there on a six-month assignment as a Russian speaker, government job. Anyway, we ran into a group of... uh, African exchange students, and I asked him I sat to dinner with one of them. And I asked him, uh, he's the leader of the group. I said, So, how many of your foreign exchange students do you send here to Moscow? He says, Oh, we send them all here. I said, Really? Um, I said, he said, Yeah. He said, We used to send about half of them to American Ivy League schools, but they came back Marxists. Wow. We send them all here now, and they come back to our country dedicated anti communists for life. Wow. True story. And I write that up as a bunch of other in, in a book. I, I just you a Twitter message about it. But it, that's the key. People that have actually experienced this on the ground and seen it with their own eyes, they know. And no professor in the world is going to talk them out of it. I mean, you see one the old Russians used to say, you see something once, it's worth a 100 tales, 100 stories.
1: Well, and I uh, appreciate the, the information. And also we know that you are the missing link in Trump-Russia collusion. So expect uh, Team Mueller to be knocking on your door here any moment now. Uh, appreciate it, Charlie. All right, we're uh, going to come back in and wrap it up right, right here. I'm Brad Mudd, uh, in for the great one. Mud, love in.
6: President Bush's extraordinary life and a noble legacy to public service. He was a wonderful man. We will always remember this great statesman.
1: Yeah, but some kind of week, right? I mean, that was the the biggest news story. And sandwiched around that, you had uh, the the Flynn announcement, and then you ended up having uh, Mueller do his recommendation earlier today on Cohen, which pretty much all we found out is that, uh, well, Cohen has no friends. And Mueller is recommending that he spends a long time President in the Bush ex- And uh, beyond that, we also end up getting the uh, information this evening that Manafort is, uh, well, not in a good place. That he had violated the terms of the Mueller agreement. But you know what? We never did end up getting anything like Trump-Russia collusion. So we actually had uh, some of the folks in the media. Some of the folks in the media kind of play nice and they're playing nice with George H.W. Bush in a way, of course, that they did not play nice when he was actually president. Kind of the revisionist history thing. But let's actually talk about a little history and where George H.W. Bush does rank in it. Kind of interesting because, of course, you have no two presidents paths to the presidency that have ever been the same. And save the founders who fought the revolution, you can certainly make the case. No one had a more perilous path in a life of service than our 41st president. But where does he actually stand among the 45 presidents? So, George Herbert Walker Bush, you remember the thousand points of light. The, the other thing is uh, that is real with him. Uh, the exceptional foreign policy success in a couple of respects. One thing that uh, a lot of people often forget, absolutely, Ronald Reagan set up the Berlin Wall coming down. However, we talk about all the times. Take a look at China right now. We had President Xi that theoretically agreed to work with us on trade. Hopefully that happens, but we don't know, right? The one thing that George H.W. Bush had was enough credibility on foreign policy and on the world stage that the Berlin wall did come down. A lot of people uh, don't remember and don't realize that it was on his watch. Absolutely was. And Without a doubt, the most efficient war we've ever fought was Operation Desert Storm. Now, you can argue the point about whether or not he should have gone for the gusto and taken Al Saddam at that point. Uh, it probably would have been the best idea, given what ended up happening eventually. But we also know his undoing. And it's apropos, because his undoing should have been his undoing. He broke a promise. Read my lips. And he raised taxes. He violated his trust. Brought about Ross Perot. Split enough of the vote. to let Clinton get through. The rest is history. But the one thing that is kind of interesting, because, uh, you know, we get a lot of one-term presidents that not so good. Not so good their histories. In a presidential context, he's actually one in a class of 12 presidents. Those are 12 presidents who served exactly one full term. Not less, not more of our 45. And those 12... The other 11, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, James K. Polk, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Rutherford B. Hayes, Benjamin Harrison, William Howard Taft, Happy Herbie, Herbert Hoover, and, yes, Jimmy Carter. So we actually start taking a look at the records and the names. This side of founder John Adams, actually a real solid case that of the one-termers, he was the most effective, or in the case of, you know, including John Adams, the second most effective of that group. Not a bad history for a one-termer. He broke a promise on taxes. Anyway, rest in peace, George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, all right, and I am due back with you next in January. If I do not talk to you before, then have a happy Hanukkah, a merry Christmas. Remember, life, liberty, and live in this Sunday, 10 o'clock, the Fox News Channel with Steve Scalise. I'm Brian Mudd, always an honor being in for the great one, Mark Levin.